0: In some ways, Easter is a strange holiday because we celebrate it as if it's a unique day when really every Lord's Day is an Easter. Every Lord's Day we celebrate and memorialize the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But one thing that is incredible about Easter is when I drove by, all these today was closed, not just Chick-fil-A. But all these was closed, which is amazing to me. As we look at the dark clouds out there and we see potentially the Antichrist releases the forces of evil, making inroads on the church, yet still, 2021, on Easter, the secular world bows his knee to Christ and recognizes that he rose from the dead as begrudgingly as they might. The Lord still reigns. It's interesting how some of the worst memories can be the most vivid memories and sometimes, strangely, some of the best memories. Something about troubling times and difficulties that we develop character. It it changes us. It leaves an indelible mark. And basic training was like that to me. It was a very strange experience. I thought I was doing something good. I thought I was serving my country, my wife, my family. And I got there and I was treated like a criminal. I thought I was incarcerated. I thought I did something wrong. And one of the most memorable experiences in basic training was going into the gas chamber. I'd heard so much about this experience, uh, but now it was my turn. Of course, I wasn't paying attention, or at least I was never really good at assembling things when they were talking about putting the gas mask on. So I tried to get it as best as I can, and I think it somewhat worked. And so we went in there, and I was hoping it would work. And I don't remember any gas coming into my going through my mask, so everything was working. And then, all of a sudden, they told us to take off our mask, which I did, but I thought, I'm not going to breathe. As long as I don't breathe, it did burn my skin. As long as I don't breathe, I'll be okay. But I guess they anticipated this, and so they grabbed me, grabbed me by the collar and said, Soldier, what is your name? What is your birthday? And recite the soldier's creed. And so I thought, hmm, I can speak while exhaling, but I don't have to breathe in. But eventually, I went through all of this, and eventually I breathed in that gas, and it was the most interesting experience that I've ever encountered. Some ways, I don't wish that upon you. Some ways, I do. Because what is so interesting is that it's shocking to your body. You breathe in like you're trying to get oxygen, and you suck as hard as you can, and you feel something going in your lungs, but it's not oxygen. And you just wheeze as you try to suck it in. And we're going to see something like that in our passage, where there's something that is supposed to be there, that looks like oxygen, looks like good stuff, looks like something that's going to nourish you, but you suck it in and you merely wheeze. Your lungs are filled with gas instead of what you truly need. So in light of that, please open your Bibles to Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter we're going to be focusing in on verses 12 through 13. We may get to verse 14. Jude chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says, These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom... The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So last time we looked at, it and we focused in on the, these hidden reefs, these these rocks at our love feast, and we focused on the beautiful Baptist. I said potluck, but one person told me Baptists don't have potlucks; they have covered dinners, <inaudible> covered dishes. That's right. Um, we're going to skip past the potlucks. The covered dishes. We hopefully enjoyed that already in Easter. And we're going to focus in on what we left off, which was this continuation of the metaphors of the false prophets, the false teachers. And he calls them waterless clouds swept along by the wind. He calls them fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea and wandering stars. All of these are taken from creation. Some people call it God's two books his natural revelation, his special revelation. And Jude is a master teacher, and he grabs all of these various analogies. He looks out there in nature, and he sees parallels between wandering stars and wandering Christians. He also goes back into the Bible and pulls out examples of Sodom and Gomorrah, pulls out examples of Cain, Korah, the wilderness generation, and Balaam. He's pulling all of these examples to say that all of these things pertain to the false prophets in his day. And there's something that we can learn here, that we should be observant of reality and constantly meditating on God's words such that that we can draw these rich connections from God's book and from God's rich creation. And so the very first metaphor we're going to look at is the very first one we encounter which is this idea of waterless clouds. Now, in order to understand the significance of this description, it's helpful to remember the climate or the environment that this book was written in. It was written in Palestine, in a very ancient world. And this ancient world was completely dependent upon rain in order to maintain life. This was not the era where you go through the fields and you see all those Uh, giant sprinkler systems that they're piping in water from who knows where to grow who knows what. It wasn't the way it was back then. If it did not rain, the plants would not grow. And if the plants did not grow, then the livestock would die. And if the livestock died and the plants died, you had nothing to eat. And hence, you died. In fact, can anyone think of a biblical example of a drought? That a drought came upon Israel. There was one sent by God. That was in the days of Elijah. Do you remember that scene where Elijah is told by God to pray, and for three years it does not rain? And at first, God tells Elijah to go by the stream, and he's going to be fed by the birds, and he drinks from the stream. Things are okay for Elijah, at least. But eventually, do you remember what happens? The, The stream dries up. There's no more natural water sources available. And so what does the Lord call Elijah to do? He calls him to go to a city, Sarephath. And there he finds a widow, and she's gathering sticks. And he goes over to the widow and says, give me some water. And I guess she had a little bit. She provides it for him. But then he says, give me some bread. And here's what the woman says. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar, and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat and die. Here is Elijah the prophet meeting a woman who's literally preparing her last meal before she starves to death. This is what a drought can do. It can bring upon famine. It kills. It destroys Droughts can be absolutely severe and be absolutely destructive. And so against this ominous threat of actual starvation, which is quite dreadful, quite horrible, people do things in starvation that they would never do under normal circumstances, even going to the most grotesque forms of evil such as cannibalism, even women eating their own children. People will do incredible things to escape starvation. So against this ominous and horrible threat, when people would see clouds, this was great news. This was a breath of fresh air. Clouds meant that there was not going to be a drought. No drought meant that the economy was going to go well, there was not going to be famine, and there was going to be food that was continuously provided on the table. This would be equivalent, seeing a cloud, seeing rain, would be equivalent to looking at the S&P 500 and seeing it's on its way up. Or looking at the unemployment rate and seeing it's on its way down. This meant things were going good. These were indicators that everything was going to be all right. And this is an interesting background and a helpful background because this is usually the exact opposite of how we feel as modern people. Often we, maybe you really like rain, but most of us don't. It's a little inconvenient. It gets wet. You can't be outside, especially during summer. You expect to have that nice hiking trip or play tennis or whatever you like to do, and you see the clouds you think, oh, no. It's going to rain. But again, this is the exact opposite of them. They would say, oh, yes, it is going to rain. Life will continue to be sustained. And against this background, these people were waterless clouds. So here they are, wondering if they're going to be going through droughts and famine, and they see these clouds coming over, and they think, here comes the rain. Praise the Lord. And yet, the clouds come over, the sky is darkened, And then they pass, and they provide absolutely no rain. They look so promising, but in the end, they produce no effect. This is how the false teachers are. They promise much, but they deliver absolutely nothing. They look like truly converted people, but in truth, they are spiritless, heartless reprobates who do not know God at all. They look like people who are going to be useful to God's kingdom, People who are going to serve right alongside of us. People who are going to head to the prison with us. And yet in the end, there will be nothing more than Judas who betray us for a few pieces of silver. These are waterless clouds. They're all show and no outcome. They're all speech but no performance. We can think of them as bags of hot air. They pretend to offer you the world and end up just ripping you off and taking your money. Proverbs 25, 14 actually uses a very similar analogy. There it says, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift but does not give it. Can you imagine that? I'm going to give you so much. I'm going to offer you all of these great things. You just hold on. And then in the end, it provides you absolutely nothing. It's like wind and clouds that provide no water. So that's what these people are. They look good but they offer you nothing. They steal your money. They steal your time. They pry on your hopes and dreams for their own benefit and exploit you for their own sakes. The next thing we see of a description of these false believers is that they're waterless clouds swept along by winds. Now, what's interesting is there's some debate about exactly the significance of this idea of being swept along by some winds. Some suggest that this swept along idea is people being easily turned. They're having no self-control. They're having no root in themselves. They're just blown around in any direction. They're blown around by the world. They're blown around by the flesh and the devil. Now, this is certainly true. Philippians 3.19 says, Their end is destruction, and their God is their belly. That's a description of the wicked. Their God is their belly. Their God is... Is their Instagram. Their God is their entertainment. They cannot be bored for a single second. They must be entertained. Their God is their own sensual pleasures. They serve themselves. They do not serve our Lord. They are enslaved to their sensual appetites. Their God is their belly. And Ephesians chapter 2 describes the wicked as being dead in trespasses and sins in which they walk following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air. Not only are they enslaved to their own sensual desires, but they're enslaved to culture. They're enslaved to whatever the zeitgeist of the world is. They're enslaved to being cool, accepted, popular, not being strange, not being unusual. They're enslaved to the zeitgeist of the world. So much so that they say insane and irrational things. I had the interesting experience of Looking for a robe the other day, actually, it was yesterday. I was looking for a robe for my wife. Apparently, it's not a good time to buy robes. Maybe you should buy it during Christmas. In the summer, apparently, people don't buy robes anymore. So I'm walking around from store to store trying to find a robe, and I finally enter a store called Forever 21, which I usually make fun of that store because none of us will forever be 21. We only got one year of that, and it's over. In fact, I was in that store, and I don't think anyone was 21 there, either younger or older. And I'm walking around that store looking for a robe, and sometimes you overhear people's conversations. You're not even trying to eavesdrop. You're just walking by, and you hear something. And I hear this man and this woman talk to one another, and this man is being directed over to this section. He says, that's the woman's section. And this is Forever 21. You would think the whole store was a woman's section, but apparently not. Apparently, there's some male stuff there, I guess. And he's saying, that's the woman's section. And the woman rebuked him and said, there's no such thing. And I couldn't believe it. I thought I was in the Twilight Zone. I thought people would, this is a joke. But here it was, in a store, in all seriousness, there is no woman section. Male and female don't exist. Foolishness, idiotic, stupid. People follow the zeitgeist. They're enslaved, they're blown around. Yesterday that would have been ridiculous. Everyone would recognize that. But because that's what the culture says, they have no backbone. They just go along. I'm not sure they believe it. Maybe they lie to themselves so much they do believe it. They are followers of this world. And finally, they are followers of the prince of the power of the air. Ultimately, the devil is directing this world, and they gladly follow him. They are enslaved to his will. Their will is to do his will. So certainly, it is certainly true that unbelievers have no backbone when it comes to spiritual things, and they're blown around by the world of the flesh and the devil. But, I'm not sure if that's what this particular text is referring to. Perhaps, this text is particularly referring to them being waterless clowns, who are simply blown right past you. You see them coming, you think, here comes hope! It blows on right past, and it offers you absolutely nothing. You see it coming, and then, just as fast as it comes, there too it goes. And this is just like all of the great ideas that man has come up with to save the church. Every generation is something different. In the time of the Jews, we had to be more Judaistic. It was called the Judaizers. We need to mix circumcision with Christianity. It's too offensive. The deity of Christ is not good. It has to go. We'll save the church by being Judaizers. False. Wrong. 70, 80 happened. The Jews are destroyed. They're gone. The church would have went with, went that direction. The church would have been swept away with the Jews at 70 AD. Then it was the Gnostics, too offensive to the Greek culture. Gnosticism. You have to believe that. Gone. Wiped away. And You just go through history. And today, whatever it is, today, we must capitulate, otherwise we'll be destroyed. It's a lie. It's a lie. We must be biblically faithful. That's what we must do. So that's what I think that this passage is actually referring to. It's referring to the fact that that these clouds come, they promise success, they promise salvation, they promise whatever they promise of good, and yet they're just blown right away without providing anything. And this is actually parallel to Second Peter chapter 2, verses 17, the parallel passage that our brother Jim read for us. There it says, these are waterless springs. Now, like the KJV here, these are wells without water. Right? You go to the well, put your little bucket down there, you go, 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 and you pull nothing but dirt. Nothing but air comes back out. These are waterless springs and are mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They're mist. The mist, if you recall, you know your Bibles in Genesis, what was it that watered the plants in the garden? It was a mist. The mist can provide the necessary nutrients for the plants. But what happens when you have a mist that's blown away? It's useless. It's gone. It looks like it could provide something good, but then it's just taken away. And that's exactly what these people are. They look like they promise much, but they're just taken away by the wind. They leave us empty and barren, and they offer us many things but ultimately do not pay out. Now, these, this description is talking about the false believers particularly, but in reality, this, refer, this refers to all of sin. All of the ways of the devil. All of the ways of the devil are like waterless clouds that offer all of these great things but provide us with nothing. Recall what Jesus says about everyone other than himself. You can put Buddha, Muhammad, Dr. Phil, whoever you want to put in here. This is what he says about them. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and store it. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Christ is the one who came to cause you to have a better life in this life and in the age to come. Everyone else is trying to steal your life in this life and in the age to come. Psalm 37.4 Psalm says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You don't need to go after the latest fad. You don't need to be popular. You don't need to be accepted by the world. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Or Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You see how he snuck persecutions in there? He's not just selling you some pipe dream the reality that we will get all of these things, but we'll also have to go through many trials to enter the kingdom of God. But God's ways are better. God's ways are pure, and he's the one who ultimately pays out. He's not waterless clouds, but he's true, true life-giving substance. So, brothers and sisters, let us come to Jesus for our joy. Let us come to Jesus with our fears, and let us come to Jesus with our hopes. You know, uh, there's a famous philosophy that talks about moderation, the golden mean. Moderation in all things. It really is true. You become obsessed with anything, it it destroys you. In fact, you can get too much of water. You can even die from too much consumption of water. But there's one thing that you never have to worry about being moderate, and it's godliness. It's the pursuit of God. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all things will be added to you. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There's something wonderful about that passage. It doesn't say according to your need. That would be good. God will provide everything that you need, which is true, but that's not what it says. It says he will provide every need of yours according to his riches and glory. It's his glory. It's his riches. And how rich is God? Immensely rich. That's how much God provides for us. So let us put our trust In God who will provide us according to his riches. Do not put your trust in government, for it will cheat you. Do not put your trust in man, for he will fail you. Do not put your trust even in your pastor, for he will disappoint you. Because the greatest of men are still men indeed, and they will fail you. But put your trust in Christ, and he'll never be like these waterless clouds blowing past by the wind. But rather, he'll be like Isaiah 44.3, which says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry land, and I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Christ is not the waterless cloud, but he's the cloud full of water waiting to be poured out upon us and to be poured out upon our offspring and to be a blessing to our descendants. So how do we get the water out of the clouds on the thirsty ground? Number one, we realize that we are the thirsty ground. That's number one thing. We recognize whether you're saved or not saved, you are the thirsty ground. If you're not saved, you're very thirsty because you've never even received any water. You're completely a desert land, parched, doomed to die, destined for eternal damnation. But if you have come and tasted that the Lord is good, you have initially received this pouring of the Spirit. But we can always... Receive more of the Spirit. And that's why the Bible tells us to be filled with the Spirit. And we actually have account in the Bible after Pentecost where the people prayed for the Spirit. And this is the Bible now. It says they were filled with the Spirit and empowered to do his work. Nobody can ever say, I've received all that I can from the Spirit. We need to recognize that we are a thirsty land and that God will give his Holy Spirit to whoever asks. We have not because we ask not. There's a prayer that we can always ask. God, I am a thirsty land. Pour out your spirit upon me. And if we have done this in the past by being saved, and we're doing this now by seeking his face, we will be satisfied in the blessing that the Lord provides. The Lord will give us a fountain. This is the promise of the gospel, that he takes that dry and parched land and he fills it with his spirit such that, that we have a well of everlasting water springing up from our hearts because we are now the temple of the Lord and the waters of life flow in us. And we see this in John chapter four, verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Once the Lord pours his spirit upon us, we have an ever-flowing spring inside of us. And what I'm encouraging you to do is get out there, dust off the well with prayer, and bring that water back up and enjoy the water that the Lord has provided you. And One of that glorious water that the Lord has provided you is contentment with godliness is great gain. Stop looking at everyone else's cistern. Stop looking at everyone else's fountain. But be thankful for the fountain that the Lord has provided you and drink deeply of him. Proverbs 5.15 says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Be thankful for what the Lord has provided you and the story that he wants you to live out for him. Don't live someone else's story. You'll be very disappointed. But live God's story for you and you'll be drinking from your own well. Or you can think of that famous passage in Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Let us not be like those wicked Jews of that day or like ourselves so often. We abandon the cistern that the Lord has provided us and start chasing career, start chasing success, start chasing whatever, diet, whatever it is, even good things. And we start making this our God. The number one sin in Israel's day was idolatry. The number one sin in our day, and in your heart, is idolatry. Abandoning the well of the Lord and going after broken cisterns that absolutely hold no water. Let's move on from that point. Let's look at the few other descriptions that we have in the few minutes remaining. They're described, these false believers are described as fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead and uprooted. Now, there are two possible meanings uh, for this idea of these fruitless trees in late autumn. One is, well, we're going into spring, but remember a couple months ago, several months ago, at the end of autumn. You look out there, and you see the trees, and this is not usually a time that you're grabbing fruit from the trees, right? All the leaves are down. You've raked them up, hopefully, right? Homeowner insurance is not coming after you anymore because the leaves are put away, and the trees are empty. So the idea here is that the the trees have nothing to offer. They are dead. This is a lifeless tree. But others have said, if that's the meaning here, why say late autumn? Why not winter? Because in winter, they're all dead anyways. Maybe it's a stylistic preference. Who knows? Others have suggested that, wait a second, some trees actually do bear fruit in autumn, and so some trees could be taking a little bit longer to bear fruit. Do you remember the parable of Jesus where there was that tree that wasn't bearing fruit and Jesus said, pluck it out? And then the person said, no, 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 give it a few more times. Let's put some fertilizer on it, let's just wait a few more seasons. And maybe that's what's going on here is that this, these people have been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and they're all the way at the end of the season, late autumn, and yet they have still provided nothing. Why? Because it's a dead tree. Because the tree is dead. There's no life in it. The time of waiting has passed, and now the hope for any fruit was now extinguished. These are dead trees. There's no point of trying to find good fruit in these dead trees. And look here at the kindness and goodness of God. God is patiently waiting for people to repent. We're praying for people. We're chasing people down to the very end because he is patient with these people. He will save them to the very end. If they merely will repent and believe in Jesus. But people take advantage of the kindness and goodness of God and think that this means that God is really not concerned with sin at all. He's really not concerned, which is the exact opposite of the truth. Because Romans 2 verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? God allowing you to live and rebel against him day after day after day after day is not supposed to get you to conclude that he doesn't care about sin, but rather to see God is so good that despite you sinning, he still gives you opportunity to repent and believe and trust in Jesus and be saved. But These fruitless trees have passed their time of harvest and yet have provided absolutely nothing. So then we get to the last two descriptions of them. They are twice dead and uproot it. So what does it mean that they are twice dead? Well, Gill says, and many commentators say that this twice dead means that they have died, they're spiritually dead, and now they're even dead of their profession. They died once by being born in sin and now twice by dying as Christians. Maybe. Maybe that's what's going on here. But I think rather this is actually all describing that tree. The twice dead goes with the very next expression, Uprooted. And actually, the Greek would be saying they're twice dead having been uprooted. So they're dead in the sense that they are dead trees that produce no fruit. There's no life in them. And they're really dead because someone pushed it over and uprooted the tree. And I was just hanging there as a dead tree, twice dead. In other words, they are completely, utterly dead. They offer you absolutely nothing. There's no fruit coming from that tree. And we should... We, too, should be able to see that certain trees have absolutely no good fruit in them. And we should stop trying to find <laughs> fruit on these dead trees. We should be able to call out unbelievers as unbelievers and recognize there's no reason to be looking for good fruit from them. They're vile. It's sinful. And not just false believers, but just the ways of the world. How often will we go back to our idols looking for good fruit? Trying to find good fruit from these dead trees It's pointless. It's sinful. It's silly. It's foolish. They're twice dead. And they are rooted. Real quick here, we'll try to get this last description here in verse 13 of the wicked. They are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Here, he describes the wicked as like waves being blown and tossed around. They're wild, they're not domesticated. Now, this refers to their lack of control, they're all over the place, they're splashing everywhere. And then it describes them as casting up the foam of their own shame. Now I have to admit, I did not know what this meant. I'm not a sea person. I don't know anything about the ocean. In fact, last time I went to the ocean I said never again. Not because of the ocean, because of the people there. So I'm not really sure what this actually was referring to. So I had to go look up sea foam to see if there was such a thing as sea foam. To my surprise, there is such a thing as sea foam. And maybe some of you guys know this. But apparently the ocean's full of nasty stuff. And as the sea comes up, it deposits this nasty grime that foams up and is yucky and gross. That's the image here. I haven't seen it, but I've seen the pictures, and it doesn't look, doesn't look pretty at all. It looks quite nasty. It's full of grime and dirt and disgusting, rotting materials. You don't want to play in that stuff, sea foam. And that's what's going on here. They're wild waves, and they cast up the foam of their own shame. They leave this residue of sinfulness. And the sad thing is this. When it says their own shame, this is probably referring to how they will feel one day in the future, but not currently. This is probably their pride. This is probably the things that they glory in today, but tomorrow they will be ashamed of. And that is the great reversal that we wait for. We wait for the things that the wicked today glory in will one day be ashamed. And the things that they try to make us shame in will one day glory in. We don't have to wait to that day to glory in those things now. We can have the divine perspective and say, God, I will not be ashamed of your word, of your people, and your promises, for you are good, and you are my hope and my foundation. Please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be embarrassed about you or your word or your promises, for this is our hope, this is our life, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Lord, help us to crucify our idols. Help us to not be proud people who don't see ourselves as thirsty ground, desperately needing your filling, your spirit. Pour your spirit upon us afresh again, Lord. We need revival in our own hearts. And Lord, we ask that we would carry this revival out to the world, to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.